Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson Right Ho Jeeves by P. G. Woodhouse Chapter 17 And yet, Jeeves, I said, twiddling a thoughtful steering-wheel, there is always the bright side. Some twenty minutes had elapsed, and having picked the honest fellow up outside the front door, I was driving in the two-seater to the picturesque town of Market Snodsbury. Since we had parted, he to go to his lair and fetch his hat, I to remain in my room and complete the formal costume, I had been doing some close thinking. The results of this I now proceeded to hand on to him. However dark the prospect may be, Jeeves, however murkily the storm-clouds may seem to gather, a keen eye can usually discern the bluebird. It is bad, no doubt, that Gussie should be going, some ten minutes from now, to distribute prizes in a state of advanced intoxication. But we must never forget that these things cut both ways. You imply, sir? Precisely. I am thinking of him in his capacity of wooer. All this ought to have put him in rare shape for offering his hand in marriage. I shall be vastly surprised if it won't turn him into a sort of caveman. Have you ever seen James Cagney in the movies? Yes, sir. Something along those lines. I heard him cough, and sniped him with a sideways glance. He was wearing that informative look of his. Then you have not heard, sir? Eh? You are not aware that a marriage has been arranged and will shortly take place between Mr. Finknoddle and Miss Bassett? What? Yes, sir. When did this happen? Shortly after Mr. Finknoddle left your room, sir. Ah, in the post-orange juice era. Yes, sir. But you are sure of your facts? How do you know? My informant was Mr. Finknoddle himself, sir. He appeared anxious to confide in me. His story was somewhat incoherent, but I had no difficulty in apprehending its substance. Prefacing his remarks with the statement that this was a beautiful world, he laughed heartily, and said that he had become formally engaged. No details? No, sir. But one can picture the scene. Yes, sir. I mean, imagination doesn't boggle. No, sir. And it didn't. 
I could see exactly what must have happened. Insert a liberal dose of mixed spirits in a normally abstemious man, and he becomes a force. He does not stand around, twiddling his fingers and stammering. He acts. I had no doubt that Gussie must have reached for the basset and clasped her to him like a stevedore handling a sack of coals, and one could readily envisage the effect of that sort of thing on a girl of romantic mind. Well, 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 Jeeves. Yes, sir. This is splendid news. Yes, sir. You see how right I was. Yes, sir. It must have been rather an eye-opener for you, watching me handle this case. Yes, sir. The simple, direct method never fails. No, sir. Whereas the elaborate does. Yes, sir. Right-o, Jeeves. We had arrived at the main entrance of Market Snodsbury Grammar School. I parked the car and went in, well content. True, the tuppy Angela problem still remained unsolved, and Aunt Dahlia's five hundred quid seemed as far off as ever, but it was gratifying to feel that good old Gussie's troubles were over, at any rate. The grammar school at Market Snodsbury had, I understood, been built somewhere in the year 1416, and, as with so many of these ancient foundations, there still seemed to brood over its great hall, where the afternoon's festivities were to take place, not a little of the fug of the centuries. It was the hottest day of the summer, and though somebody had opened a tentative window or two, the atmosphere remained distinctive and individual. In this hall the youth of Market Snodsbury had been eating its daily lunch for a matter of five hundred years, and the flavor lingered. The air was sort of heavy and languorous, if you know what I mean, with the scent of young England and boiled beef and carrots. Aunt Dahlia, who was sitting with a bevy of the local nibs in the second row, sighted me as I entered and waved to me to join her, but I was too smart for that. I wedged myself in among the standees at the back, leaning up against a chap who, from the aroma, might have been a corn-chandler or something on that order. The essence of strategy on these occasions is to be as near the door as possible. The hall was gaily decorated with flags and colored paper, and the eye was further refreshed by the spectacle of a mixed drove of boys, parents and what not, the former running a good deal to shiny faces and eaten collars, the latter stressing the black satin note rather when female, and looking as if their coats were too tight if male. And presently there was some applause, sporadic Jeeves has since told me it was, and I saw Gussie being steered by a bearded bloke in a gown to a seat in the middle of the platform. And I confess that as I beheld him and felt that there but for the grace of God went Bertram Wooster, a shudder ran through the frame. It all reminded me so vividly of the time I had addressed that girls' school. Of course, looking at it dispassionately, you may say that for horror and peril there is no comparison between an almost human audience like the one before me and a mob of small girls with pigtails down their backs, and this, I concede, is true. Nevertheless, the spectacle was enough to make me feel like a fellow watching a pal going over Niagara Falls in a barrel, and the thought of what I had escaped caused everything for a moment to go black and swim before my eyes. When I was able to see clearly once more, I perceived that Gussie was now seated. He had his hands on his knees, with his elbows out at right angles, like a nigger minstrel of the old school about to ask Mr. Bones why a chicken crosses the road, 
and he was staring before him with a smile so fixed and pebble-beached that I should have thought that anybody could have guessed that there sat one in whom the old familiar juice was plashing up against the back of the front teeth. In fact, I saw Dahlia, who, having assisted at so many hunting dinners in her time, is second to none as a judge of the symptoms, give a start and gaze long and earnestly. And she was just saying something to Uncle Tom on her left when the bearded bloke stepped to the footlights and started making a speech. From the fact that he spoke as if he had a hot potato in his mouth without getting the raspberry from the lads in the ringside seats, I deduced that he must be the headmaster. With his arrival in the spotlight, a sort of perspiring resignation seemed to settle on the audience. Personally, I snuggled up against the Chandler and let my attention wander. The speech was on the subject of the doings of the school during the past term, and this part of a prize-giving is always apt to rather to fail to grip the visiting stranger. I mean, you know how it is. You're told that J. B. Brewster has won an exhibition for classics at Cats, Cambridge, and you feel that it's one of those stories where you can't see how funny it is unless you really know the fellow. And the same applies to G. Bullitt being awarded the Lady Jane Wick Scholarship at the Birmingham College of Veterinary Science. In fact, I and the Corn Chandler, who was looking a bit fagged, I thought, as if he had had a hard morning channeling the corn, were beginning to doze lightly when things suddenly brisked up, bringing Gussie into the picture for the first time. "'Today,' said the bearded bloke, "'we are all happy to welcome as the guest of the afternoon Mr. Fitzwattle.' At the beginning of the address, Gussie had subsided into a sort of daydream, with his mouth hanging open. About halfway through, faint signs of life had begun to show. And for the last few minutes, he had been trying to cross one leg over the other, and failing, and having another shot, and failing again. But only now did he exhibit any real animation. He sat up with a jerk. Think noddle, he said, opening his eyes. Fitznoddle. Finknoddle. I should say, Finknoddle. Of course you should, you silly ass, said Gussie genially. All right, get on with it. And closing his eyes, he began trying to cross his legs again. I could see that this little spot of friction had rattled the bearded bloke a bit. He stood for a moment fumbling at the fungus with a hesitating hand. But they make these headmasters of tough stuff. The weakness passed. He came back nicely and carried on. "'We're all happy, I say, to welcome as the guest of the afternoon Mr. Finknoddle, who has kindly consented to award the prizes. This task, as you know, is one that should have been devolved upon that well-beloved and vigorous member of our Board of Governors, the Reverend William Plomer, and we are all, I am sure, very sorry that illness at the last moment should have prevented him from being here today. But if I may borrow a familiar metaphor from thee, if I may employ a homely metaphor familiar to you all, what we lose on the swings we gain on the roundabouts. He paused and beamed rather freely, to show that this was comedy. I could have told the man it was no use, not a ripple. The corn-channer leaned against me and muttered, "'What did he say?' But that was all. 
It's always a nasty jar to wait for the laugh and find that the gag hasn't got across. The bearded bloke was visibly discomposed. At that, however, I think he would have got by had he not at this juncture unfortunately stirred Gussie up again. In other words, though deprived of Mr. Plomer, we have with us this afternoon Mr. Finknottle. I am sure that Mr. Finknottle's name is one that needs no introduction to you. It is, I venture to assert, a name that is familiar to us all. Not to you, said Gussie. And the next moment I saw what Jeeves had meant when he had described him as laughing heartily. Heartily was absolutely the modjust. It sounded like a gas explosion. "'You didn't seem to know it so dashed well, what, what?' said Gussie, and reminded apparently by the word what of the word waddle, he repeated the latter some sixteen times with a rising inflection. "'Waddle, waddle, waddle,' he concluded. "'Right-ho, push on!' But the bearded bloke had shot his bolt. He stood there licked at last, and, watching him closely, I could see that he was now at the crossroads. I could spot what he was thinking as clearly as if he had confided to my personal ear. He wanted to sit down and call it a day, I mean, but the thought that gave him pause was that, if he did, he must then either uncork Gussie or take the Finknottle speech as read and get straight on to the actual prize-giving. It was a dashed tricky thing, of course, to have to decide on the spur of the moment. I was reading in the paper the other day about those birds who are trying to split the atom, the nub being that they haven't the foggiest as to what will happen if they do. It may be all right. On the other hand, it may not be all right. And pretty silly a chap would feel, no doubt, if, having split the atom, he suddenly found the house going up in smoke and himself torn limb from limb. So with the bearded bloke. Whether he was abreast of the inside facts in Gussie's case, I don't know, but it was obvious to him by this time that he had run into something pretty hot. Trial gallops had shown that Gussie had his own way of doing things. Those interruptions had been enough to prove to the perspicacious that here, seated on the platform at the big binge of the season, was one who, if pushed forward to make a speech, might let himself go in a rather epic-making manner. On the other hand, chain him up and put a green baize cloth over him, and where were you? The proceeding would be over about a half an hour too soon. It was, as I say, a difficult problem to have to solve, and left to himself, I don't know what conclusion he would have come to. Personally, I think he would have played it safe. As it happened, however, the thing was taken out of his hands, for at this moment, Gussie, having stretched his arms and yawned a bit, switched on that pebble-beach smile again and tacked down to the edge of the platform. "'Speech!' he said affably. He then stood with his thumbs in the armholes of his waistcoat, waiting for the applause to die down. It was some time before this happened, for he had got a very fine hand indeed. I suppose it wasn't often that the boys of Market Snodsbury Grammar School came across a man public-spirited enough to call their headmaster a silly ass, and they were showing their appreciation in no uncertain manner. Gussie may have been one over the eight, but as far as the majority of those present were concerned, he was sitting on top of the world. "'Boys,' said Gussie, "'I mean, ladies and gentlemen and boys, I do not detain you long.' 
but I suppose on this occasion to feel compelled to say a few auspicious words. Ladies and boys and gentlemen, we have all listened with interest to the remarks of our friend here who forgot to shave this morning. I don't know his name, but then he didn't know mine. Fitzwaddle. I mean absolutely absurd. Which squares things up a bit, and we are all sorry that the reverend, whatever he was called, should be dying of adenoids. But after all, here today, gone tomorrow, and all flesh is as grass, and what not, and that wasn't what I wanted to say. What I wanted to say was this, and I say it confidently. Without fear of contradiction, I say in short, I am happy to be here on this auspicious occasion, and I take much pleasure in kindly awarding the prizes, consisting of the handsome books you see laid out on that table. As Shakespeare says, there are sermons in books, stones in the running brooks, or rather the other way about, and there you have it in a nutshell. It went well, and I wasn't surprised. I couldn't quite follow some of it, but anybody could see that it was real ripe stuff, and I was amazed that even the course of treatment he had been taking could have rendered so normally tongue-tied a dumb brick as Gussie capable of it. It just shows what any member of Parliament will tell you, that if you want real oratory, the preliminary noggin is essential. Unless pie-eyed, you cannot hope to grip. Gentlemen, said Gussie, I mean, ladies and gentlemen, and of course boys, what a beautiful world this is. A beautiful world, full of happiness on every side. Let me tell you a little story. Two Irishmen, Pat and Mike, were walking along Broadway, and one said to the other, Bagora, the race is not always to the swift. And the other replied, Faith and Begob, education is a drawing out, not a putting in. I must say, it seemed to me the rottenest story I had ever heard, and I was surprised that Jeeves should have considered it worth while shoving into a speech. However, when I tax him with this later, he said that Gussie had altered the plot a good deal, and I dare say that accounts for it. At any rate, that was the Conte as Gussie told it, and when I say that it got a very fair laugh, you will understand what a popular favorite he had become with the multitude. There might be a bearded bloke or so on the platform, and a small section in the second row who were wishing the speaker would conclude his remarks and resume his seat, but the audience as a whole was for him solidly. There was applause, and a voice cried, Hear, hear! Yes, said Gussie, it is a beautiful world. The sky is blue, the birds are singing, there is optimism everywhere. And why not, boys and ladies and gentlemen? I'm happy, you're happy, we're all happy even the meanest Irishman that walks along Broadway. Though, as I say, there were two of them, Pat and Mike, one drawing out, the other putting in. I should like you boys, taking the time for me, to give three cheers for this beautiful world, all together now. Presently the dust settled down and the plaster stopped falling from the ceiling, and he went on. People who say it isn't a beautiful world don't know what they are talking about. Driving here in the car today toward the kind prizes, 
I was reluctantly compelled to tick off my host on this very point. Old Tom Travers. You will see him sitting there in the second row, next to the large lady in beige. He pointed helpfully, and the hundred or so market snodsburians who craned their necks at the direction indicated were able to observe Uncle Tom blushing prettily. I ticked him off properly, the poor fish. He expressed the opinion that the world was in a deplorable state. I said, Don't talk rot, old Tom Travers. I am not accustomed to talk rot, he said. Then for a beginner, I said, You do it dashed well. And I think you will admit, boys and ladies and gentlemen, that was telling him. The audience seemed to agree with him. The point went big. The voice that had said, Hear, hear, said, Hear, hear again, and my corn chandler hammered the floor vigorously with a large size walking stick. Well, boys, resumed Gussie, having shot his cuffs and smirked horribly, this is the end of the summer term and many of you, no doubt, are leaving the school. And I don't blame you, because there's a frost in here you could cut with a knife. You are going out into the great world. Soon many of you will be walking along Broadway. And what I want to impress upon you is that, however much you may suffer from adenoids, you must all use every effort to prevent yourselves becoming pessimists and talking rot like old Tom Travers. There, in the second row, the fellow with a face rather like a walnut. He paused to allow those wishing to do so to refresh themselves with another look at Uncle Tom, and I found myself musing in some little perplexity. Long association with the members of the drones has put me pretty well in touch with the various ways in which an overdose of the blushful hypocrine can take the individual, but I had never seen anyone react quite as Gussie was doing. There was a snap about his work which I had never witnessed before, even in barming Fotheringay Phipps on New Year's Eve. Jeeves, when I discussed the matter with him later, said it was something to do with inhibitions, if I caught the word correctly, and the suppression of, I think he said, the ego. What he meant, I gathered, was that owing to the fact that Gussie had just completed a five-year stretch of a blameless seclusion among the newts, all the goofiness which ought to have been spread out thin over those five years and have been bottled up during that period came to the surface on this occasion in a lump, or, if you prefer to put it that way, like a tidal wave. There may be something in this. Jeeves generally knows. Anyway, be that as it may, I was dashed glad I had had the shrewdness to keep out of that second row. It might be unworthy of the prestige of a wooster to squash in among the proletariat in the standing-room-only section, but at least I felt I was out of the danger zone. So thoroughly had Gussie got it up his nose by now that it seemed to me that had he sighted me he might have become personal about even an old school friend. "'If there's one thing in the world I can't stand,' proceeded Gussie, "'is a pessimist.' Be optimists, boys. You all know the difference between an optimist and a pessimist. An optimist is a man who, well, take the case of two Irishmen walking along Broadway. One is an optimist, and one is a pessimist, just as one's name is Pat and the other's Mike. Why, hello, Bertie. I didn't know you were here. Too late. 
I endeavored to go to earth behind the Chandler, only to discover that there was no Chandler there. Some appointment suddenly remembered, possibly a promise to his wife that he would be home to tea, had caused him to ooze away while my attention was elsewhere, leaving me right out in the open. Between me and Gussie, who was now pointing in an offensive manner, there was nothing but a sea of interested faces looking up at me. "'Now there,' boomed Gussie, continuing to point, "'is an instance of what I mean. Boys and ladies and gentlemen, take a good look at that object standing up there at the back. Morning coat, trousers as worn, quiet gray tie and carnation in buttonhole. You can't miss him. Bertie Wooster, that is, and as foul a pessimist as ever bit a tiger. I tell you I despise that man. And why do I despise him? Because, boys and ladies and gentlemen, he is a pessimist. His attitude is defeatist. When I told him I was going to address you this afternoon, he tried to dissuade me. And do you know why he tried to dissuade me? Because he said my trousers would split up the back. The cheers that greeted this were the loudest yet. Anything about splitting trousers went straight to the simple hearts of the young scholars of Market Snodsbury Grammar School. Two in the row in front of me turned purple, and a small lad with freckles seated beside them asked me for my autograph. Let me tell you a story about Bertie Wooster. A Wooster can stand a good deal, but he cannot stand having his name bandied in a public place. Picking my feet up softly, I was in the very process of executing a quiet sneak for the door when I perceived that the bearded bloke had at last decided to apply the closure. Why he hadn't done so before is beyond me. Spellbound, I take it, and of course when a chap is going like a breeze with the public, as Gussie had been, it's not so dashed easy to chip in. However, the prospect of hearing another of Gussie's anecdotes seemed to have done the trick. Rising rather as I had risen from my bench at the beginning of that painful scene with Tuppy in the twilight, he made a leap for the table, snatched up a book, and came bearing down on the speaker. He touched Gussie on the arm, and Gussie, turning sharply and seeing a large bloke with a beard apparently about to bean him with a book, sprang back in an attitude of self-defense. "'Perhaps, as time is getting on, Mr. Finknottle, we had better—' "'Oh, ah,' said Gussie, getting the trend. He relaxed. "'The prizes, eh? Of course, yes, right-ho. Yes, might as well be shoving along with it. What's this one?' "'Spelling and punctuation. P.K. Purvis,' announced the bearded bloke. "'Spelling and diction. P.K. Purvis,' echoed Gussie, as if he were calling Coles. "'Forward, P.K. Purvis!' Now that the whistle had been blown on his speech, it seemed to me that there was no longer any need for the strategic retreat which I had been planning. I had no wish to tear myself away unless I had to. I mean, I had told Jeeves that this binge would be fraught with interest, and it was fraught with interest. There was a fascination about Gussie's methods which gripped and made one reluctant to pass the thing up provided personal innuendos were steered clear of. I decided, accordingly, to remain, and presently there was a musical squeaking, and P.K. Purvis climbed the platform. 
The spelling and dictation champ was about three foot six in his squeaking shoes, with a pink face and sandy hair. Gussie patted his hair. He seemed to have taken an immediate fancy to the lad. "'You, P.K. Purvis?' "'Sir, yes, sir.' "'It's a beautiful world, P.K. Purvis.' "'Sir, yes, sir.' "'Ah, you've noticed it, have you? Good. "'You married by any chance?' "'Sir, no, sir.' "'Get married, P.K. Purvis,' said Gussie earnestly. "'It's the only life. "'Well, here's your book. "'Looks rather bilged to me from a glance at the title page, "'but such as it is, here you are.' P.K. Purvis squeaked off amidst sporadic applause, but one could not fail to note that the sporadic was fouled by a rather strained silence. It was evident that Gussie was striking something of a new note in Market Snodsbury's scholastic circles. Looks were exchanged between parent and parent. The bearded bloke had the air of one who has drained the bitter cup. As for Aunt Dahlia, her demeanor now told only too clearly that her last doubts had been resolved and her verdict was in. I saw her whisper to the Bassett, who sat on her right, and the Bassett nodded sadly and looked like a fairy about to shed a tear and add another star to the Milky Way. Gussie, after the departure of P. K. Purvis, had fallen into a sort of daydream, and was standing with his mouth open and his hands in his pockets. Becoming abruptly aware that a fat kid in knickerbockers was at his elbow, he started violently. "'Ho!' he said, visibly shaken. "'Who are you?' "'This,' said the bearded bloke, "'is R. V. Smethurst.' "'What's he doing here?' asked Gussie suspiciously. "'You are presenting him with a drawing prize, Mr. Finknoddle.' This apparently struck Gussie as a reasonable explanation. His face cleared. "'That's right, too,' he said. "'Well, here it is, cocky.' "'You off?' he said, as the kid prepared to withdraw. "'Sir, yes, sir.' "'Wait, R.V. Smethurst. Not so fast. "'Before you go, there is a question I wish to ask you.' "'But the beard bloke's aim now seemed to be to rush the ceremonies a bit. "'He hustled R.V. Smethurst off stage rather like a chucker out in a pub, "'regretfully ejecting an old and respected customer, "'and starting paging G.G. G. Simmons.' A moment later the latter was up and coming, and conceive my emotion when it was announced that the subject on which he had clicked was scripture knowledge. One of us, I mean to say. G. G. Simmons was an unpleasant, perky-looking stripling, mostly front teeth and spectacles, but I gave him a big hand. We scripture knowledge sharks stick together. Gussie, I was sorry to see, didn't like him. There was in his manner, as he regarded G. G. Simmons, none of the chumminess which had marked it during his interview with P. K. Purvis, or, in a somewhat lesser degree, with R. V. Smethurst. He was cold and distant. Well, G. G. Simmons. Sir, yes, sir. What do you mean, sir, yes, sir? Dashed silly thing to say. So you've won the scripture knowledge prize, have you? Sir, yes, sir. "'Yes,' said Gussie. "'You look just like the sort of little tick who would. "'And yet,' he said, pausing and eyeing the child keenly, "'how are we to know that this has all been open and above board? "'Let me test you, G. G. Simmons.' 
What was... what's his name, the chap who begat Thingummy? Can you answer me that, Simmons?' "'Sir, no, sir.' Gussie turned to the bearded bloke. "'Fishy,' he said. "'Very fishy. This boy appears to be totally lacking in scripture knowledge.' The bearded bloke passed a hand across his forehead. "'I can assure you, Mr. Finknottle, that every care was taken to ensure a correct marking, and that Mr. Simmons outdistanced his competitors by a wide margin.' "'Well, if you say so,' said Gussie doubtfully. "'All right, G.G. Simmons, take your prize.' "'Sir, thank you, sir.' But let me tell you that there's nothing to stick on sight about in winning a prize for scripture knowledge. Bertie Wooster. I don't know when I've had a nastier shock. I had been going on the assumption that, now that they had stopped him making his speech, Gussie's fangs had been drawn, as you might say. To duck my head down and resume my edging toward the door was with me the work of a moment." Bertie Wooster won the Scripture Knowledge Prize at a kid's school we were at together, and you know what he's like. But, of course, Bertie frankly cheated. He succeeded in scrounging that Scripture Knowledge trophy over the heads of better men by means of some of the rawest and most brazen swindling methods ever witnessed, even at a school where such things were common. At that man's pockets, as he entered the examination room, were not stuffed to the bursting point with lists of the kings of Judah. I heard no more. A moment later I was out in God's air, fumbling with a fevered foot at the self-starter of the old car. The engine raced, the clutch slid into position, I tooted and drove off. My ganglions were still vibrating as I ran the car into the stables of Brinkley Court and it was a much-shaken Bertram who tottered up to his room to change into something loose. Having donned flannels, I laid down on the bed for a bit, and I suppose I must have dozed off, for the next thing I remember is finding Jeeves at my side. I sat up. My tea, Jeeves? No, sir, it's nearly dinner-time. The mists cleared away. I must have been asleep. Yes, sir. Nature taking its toll of the exhausted frame. Yes, sir. And enough to make it. Yes, sir. And now it's nearly dinner time, you say? All right. I'm in no mood for dinner, but I suppose you had better lay out the clothes. It will not be necessary, sir. The company will not be dressing tonight. A cold collation has been set out in the dining room. Why is that? It was Mrs. Travers's wish that this should be done in order to minimize the work for the staff, who are attending a dance at Sir Percival Stretchley Budd's residence tonight. Of course, yes, I remember. My cousin Angela told me. Tonight's the night, what? You going, Jeeves? No, sir. I'm not very fond of this form of entertainment in the rural district, sir. I know what you mean. These country binges are all the same. A piano, one fiddle, and a floor-like sandpaper. Is Anatole going? Angela hinted not. Miss Angela was correct, sir. Monsieur Anatole is in bed. Temperamental blighters, these Frenchmen. Yes, sir. There was a pause. Well, Jeeves, I said, it was certainly one of those afternoons. What? Yes, sir. I cannot recall one more packed with incident. 
and I left before the finish. Yes, sir, I observed your departure. You couldn't blame me for withdrawing. No, sir, Mr. Finknoddle had undoubtedly become embarrassingly personal. Was there much more of it after I went? No, sir, the proceedings terminated very shortly. Mr. Finknoddle's remarks with reference to Master G. G. Simmons brought about an early closure. But he had finished his remarks about G. G. Simmons. Only temporarily, sir. He resumed them immediately after your departure. If you recollect, sir, he had already proclaimed himself suspicious of Master Simmons's bona fides, and he now proceeded to deliver a violent verbal attack upon the young gentleman, asserting that it was impossible for him to have won the Scripture Knowledge Prize without systematic cheating on an impressive scale. He went so far as to suggest that Master Simmons was well known to the police. "'Golly, Jeeves!' "'Yes, sir. The words did create a considerable sensation. The reaction of those present to this accusation I should describe as mixed.' The young students appeared pleased and applauded vigorously, but Mr. Simmons's mother rose from her seat and addressed Mr. Finknoddle in terms of strong protest. "'Did Gussie seem taken aback? Did he recede from his position?' "'No, sir. He said that he could see it all now, and hinted at a guilty liaison between Master Simmons's mother and the headmaster, accusing the latter of having cooked the marks as his expression was, in order to gain favor with the former. "'You don't mean that?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Egad, Jeeves. And then?' "'They sang the national anthem, sir.' "'Surely not?' "'Yes, sir.' "'At a moment like that?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Well, you were there, and you know, of course, but I should have thought the last thing Gussie and this woman would have done in the cirques would have been to start singing duets.' "'You misunderstand me, sir. It was the entire company who sang.' The headmaster turned to the organist and said something to him in a low tone, upon which the latter began to play the national anthem, and the proceedings terminated. "'I see. About time, too.' "'Yes, sir. Mrs. Simmons's attitude had become unquestionably menacing.' I pondered. What I had heard was, of course, of a nature to excite pity and terror, not to mention alarm and despondency, and it would be paltering with the truth to say that I was pleased about it. On the other hand, it was all over now, and it seemed to me that the only thing to do was not to mourn over the past, but to fix the mind on the bright future. I mean to say, Gussie might have lowered the existing Worcestershire record for goofiness, and definitely forfeited all chance of becoming Market Snodsbury's favorite son, but you couldn't get away from the fact that he had proposed to Madeline Bassett, and you had to admit that she had accepted him. I put this to Jeeves. A frightful exhibition, I said, and one which will very possibly ring down history's pages. But we must not forget, Jeeves, that Gussie, though now doubtless looked upon in the neighborhood as the world's worst freak, is all right otherwise. No, sir. I did not quite get this. When you say no, sir, do you mean yes, sir? No, sir, I mean no, sir. He is not all right otherwise? No, sir. But he's betrothed. No longer, sir. Miss Bassett has severed the engagement. You don't mean that? Yes, sir. I wonder if you have noticed a rather peculiar thing about this chronicle, 
I allude to the fact that at one time or another practically everybody playing a part in it has had occasion to bury his or her face in his or her hands. I have participated in some pretty glutinous affairs in my time, but I think that never before or since have I been mixed up with such a solid body of brow-clutchers. Uncle Tom did it, if you remember. So did Gussie. So did Tuppy. So, probably, though I have no data, did Anatole, and I wouldn't put it past the Bassett. And Aunt Dahlia, I have no doubt, would have done it too, but for the risk of disarranging the carefully fixed coiffure. Well, what I'm trying to say is that, at this juncture, I did it myself. Up went the hands and down went the head, and in another jiffy I was clutching as energetically as the best of them. And it was while I was still massaging the coconut and wondering what the next move was that something barged up against the door like the delivery of a ton of coals. "'I think this may very possibly be Mr. Finknoddle himself, sir,' said Jeeves. His intuition, however, had led him astray. It was not Gussie, but Tuppy. He came in and stood breathing asthmatically. It was plain that he was deeply stirred. End of chapter 17 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. Right Ho Jeeves by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 18. I eyed him narrowly. I didn't like his looks. Mark you, I don't say I ever had much because nature, when planning this sterling fellow, shoved in a lot more lower jaw than was absolutely necessary, and made the eyes a bit too keen and piercing for one who was neither an empire-builder nor a traffic-policeman. But on the present occasion, in addition to offending the aesthetic sense, this glossop seemed to me to be wearing a distinct air of menace, and I found myself wishing that Jeeves wasn't always so dashed tactful. I mean, it's all very well to remove yourself like an eel sliding into mud when the employer has a visitor, but there are moments, and it looked to me as if this was going to be one of them, when the truer tact is to stick around and stand ready to lend a hand in the free-for-all. For Jeeves was no longer with us. I hadn't seen him go, and I hadn't heard him go, but he had gone. As far as the eye could reach, one noted nobody but Tuppy and in Tuppy's demeanour, as I say, there was a certain something that tended to disquiet. He looked to me very much like a man who had come to reopen that matter of my tickling Angela's ankles. However, his opening remark told me that I had been alarming myself unduly. It was of a pacific nature, and came as a great relief. "'Bertie,' he said, "'I owe you an apology. I have come to make it.' My relief on hearing these words, containing as they did no reference of any sort to tickled ankles, was, as I say, great. But I don't think it was any greater than my surprise. Months had passed since that painful episode at the drones, and until now he hadn't given a sign of remorse and contrition. Indeed, word had reached me through private sources that he frequently told the story at dinners and other gatherings, and, when doing so, laughed his silly head off. 
I found it hard to understand, accordingly, what could have caused him to abase himself at this later date. Presumably he had been given the elbow by his better self. But why? Still, there it was. My dear chap, I said gentlemanly to the gills, don't mention it. What's the sense of saying don't mention it? I have mentioned it. I mean, don't mention it any more. Don't give the matter another thought. We all of us forget ourselves sometimes and do things which in our calmer moments we regret. No doubt you were a bit tight at the time. What the devil do you think you're talking about? I didn't like his tone. Brusque. Correct me if I am wrong, I said with a certain stiffness, but I assumed that you were apologizing for your foul conduct in looping back the last ring that night in the drones, causing me to plunge into the swimming bee in the full soup and fish. Ass, not that at all. Then what? This Bassett business. What Bassett business? Bertie, said Tuppy, when you told me last night that you were in love with Madeline Bassett, I gave you the impression that I believed you, but I didn't. The thing seemed too incredible. However, since then I have made inquiries, and the facts appear to square with your statement. I have now come to apologize for doubting you. Made inquiries? I asked her if you had proposed to her, and she said yes, you had. Tuppy, you didn't. I did. Have you no delicacy, no proper feeling? No. Oh, well, right ho, of course, but I think you ought to have. Delicacy be dashed. I wanted to be certain that it was not you who stole Angela from me. I now know it wasn't. So long as he knew that, I didn't so much mind him having no delicacy. Ah, I said, well, that's fine. Hold that thought. I have found out who it was. What? He stood brooding for a moment. His eyes were smoldering with a dull fire. His jaw stuck out like the back of Jeeves's head. Bertie, he said, do you remember what I swore I would do to the chap who stole Angela from me? As near as I recall, you plan to pull him inside out. And make him swallow himself. Correct. The program still holds good. But, Tuppy, I keep assuring you as a competent eyewitness that nobody snitched Angela from you during that con trip. No, but they did after she got back. What? Don't keep saying what you heard. But she hasn't seen anybody since she got back. Oh, no? How about that newt bloke? Gussie? Precisely. The serpent finknoddle. This seemed to me absolute gibbering. But Gussie loves the Bassett. You can't all love this blighted Bassett. What astonishes me is that anybody can do it. He loves Angela, I tell you, and she loves him. But Angela handed you your hat before Gussie ever got here. No, she didn't. Couple of hours after. He couldn't have fallen in love with her in a couple of hours. Why not? I fell in love with her in a couple of minutes. I worshipped her immediately we met, the pop-eyed little excrescence. But, dash it, don't argue, Bertie. The facts are all docketed. She loves this newt-nuzzling blister. Quite absurd, laddie, quite absurd. Oh, he ground a heel into the carpet. 
a thing I've often read about, but had never seen done before. Then perhaps she will explain how it is that she happened to come to be engaged to him. You could have knocked me down with an F. Engaged to him? She told me herself. She was kidding you. She was not kidding me. Shortly after the conclusion of this afternoon's binge at Market Snodsbury Grammar School, he asked her to marry him, and she appears to have right hoed without a murmur. There must be some mistake. There was. The snake Thinknottle made it, and by now I bet he realizes it. I've been chasing him since five-thirty. Chasing him? All over the place. I want to pull his head off. I see. Quite. You haven't seen him by any chance? No. Well, if you do, say good-bye to him quickly and put in your order for lilies. Oh, Jeeves! Sir? I hadn't heard the door open, but the man was on the spot once more. My private belief, as I think I have mentioned before, is that Jeeves doesn't have to open doors. He's like one of those birds in India who bung their astral bodies about. The chaps, I mean, who, having gone into thin air in Bombay, reassemble the parts and appear two minutes later in Calcutta. Only some such theory will account for the fact that he's not there one moment and is there the next. He just seems to float from spot A to spot B like some form of gas. Have you seen Mr. Finknottle Jeeves? No, sir. I'm going to murder him. Very good, sir. Tuppy withdrew, banging the door behind him, and I put Jeeves abreast. Jeeves, I said, do you know what? Mr. Finknottle is engaged to my cousin Angela. Indeed, sir. Well, how about it? Do you grasp the psychology? Does it make sense? Only a few hours ago he was engaged to Miss Bassett. Gentlemen who have been discarded by one young lady are often apt to attach themselves without delay to another, sir. It is what is known as a gesture. I began to grasp. I see what you mean. Defiant stuff. Yes, sir. A sort of, right-ho, please yourself, but if you don't want me, there are plenty who do. Precisely, sir. My cousin George— Never mind about your cousin George, Jeeves. Very good, sir. Keep him for the long winter evenings, what? Just as you wish, sir. And anyway, I bet your cousin George wasn't a shrinking, non-goose-booing jellyfish like Gussie. This is what astounds me, Jeeves. That is what astounds me, Jeeves, that it should be Gussie who has been putting in all this heavy gesture-making stuff. You must remember, sir, that Mr. Finknottle is in a somewhat inflamed cerebral condition. That's true. A bit above par at the moment, as it were. Exactly, sir. Well, I'll tell you one thing. He'll be in a jolly sight more inflamed cerebral condition if Tuppy gets hold of him. What's the time? Just on eight o'clock, sir. Then Tuppy has been chasing him for two hours and a half. We must save the unfortunate blighter, Jeeves. Yes, sir. A human life is a human life. What? Exceedingly true, sir. The first thing, then, is to find him. After that, we can discuss plans and schemes. Go forth, Jeeves, and scour the neighborhood. It will not be necessary, sir. If you will glance behind you, you will see Mr. Finknottle coming out from beneath your bed. And, by Jove, he was absolutely right. There was Gussie, emerging as stated. 
He was covered with fluff and looked like a tortoise popping forth for a bit of a breather. "'Gussie,' I said. "'Jeeves,' said Gussie. "'Sir,' said Jeeves. "'Is that door locked, Jeeves?' "'No, sir, but I will attend to the matter immediately.' Gussie sat down on the bed, and I thought for a moment that he was going to be in the mood by burying his face in his hands. However, he merely brushed a dead spider from his brow. "'Have you locked the door, Jeeves?' "'Yes, sir. Because you can never tell that that ghastly glossop might not take it in his head to come—' The word back froze on his lips. He hadn't got any further than a bee-ish sound when the handle of the door began to twist and rattle. He sprang from the bed and for an instant stood looking exactly like a picture my Aunt Agatha has in her dining-room, the stag at bay, Landseer. Then he made a dive for the cupboard and was inside it before one really got on to it that he had started leaping. I have seen fellows late for the 9.15 move less nippily. I shot a glance at Jeeves. He allowed his right eyebrow to flicker slightly, which is near as he ever gets to a display of the emotions. "'Hello!' I yipped. "'Let me in, blast you!' responded Tuppy's voice from without. "'Who locked this door?' I consulted Jeeves once more in the language of the eyebrow. He raised one of his. I raised one of mine. He raised his other. I raised my other. Then we both raised both. Finally, there seemed no other policy to pursue. I flung wide the gates, and Tuppy came shooting in. Now what? I said, as nonchalantly as I could manage. Why was the door locked? demanded Tuppy. I was in a pretty good eyebrow-raising form by now, so I gave him a touch of it. "'Is one to have no privacy, Glossop?' I said coldly. "'I instructed Jeeves to lock the door because I was about to disrobe.' "'A likely story,' said Tuppy, and I'm not sure he didn't add, forsooth. "'You needn't try to make me believe that you're afraid of people are going to run excursion trains to see you in your underwear. You locked that door because you've got the snake think noddle concealed in here. I suspected it the moment I'd left.' and I decided to come back and investigate. I'm going to search this room from end to end. I believe he's in that cupboard. What's in this cupboard? Just close, I said, having another stab at the nonchalant, though extremely dubious as to whether it would come off. The usual wardrobe of the English gentleman paying a country house visit. You're lying. Well, I wouldn't have been if he had only waited a minute before speaking, because the words were hardly out of his mouth before Gussie was out of the cupboard. I have commented on the speed with which he had gone in. It was nothing to the speed with which he emerged. There was a sort of whirr and blur, and he was no longer with us. I think Tuppy was surprised. In fact, I'm sure he was. Despite the confidence with which he had stated his view that the cupboard contained Finknoddles, it plainly disconcerted him to have the chap fizzing out at him like this. He gargled sharply and jumped back about five feet. The next moment, however, he had recovered his poise and was galloping down the corridor in pursuit. It only needed Aunt Dahlia after them, shouting yoikes, or whatever is customary on these occasions, to complete the resemblance to a brisk run with the corn. I sank into a handy chair. I am not a man whom it is easy to discourage but it seemed to me that things had at least begun to get too complex for Bertram. "'Jeeves,' I said, "'all this is a bit thick.' "'Yes, sir.' 
The head rather swims. Yes, sir. I think you had better leave me, Jeeves. I shall need to devote the very closest thought to the situation which has arisen. Very good, sir. The door closed, I lit a cigarette, and began to ponder. End of chapter 18「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org.」Reading by Mark Nelson Right Ho Jeeves by P. G. Woodhouse Chapter 19 Most chaps in my position, I imagine, would have pondered all the rest of the evening without getting a bite. But we Woosters have an uncanny knack of going straight to the heart of things, and I don't suppose it was much more than ten minutes after I had started pondering before I saw what had to be done. What was needed to straight matters out, I perceived, was a heart-to-heart -heart talk with Angela. She had caused all the trouble by her mutton-headed behavior in saying yes instead of no when Gussie, in the grip of mixed drinks and cerebral excitement, had suggested teaming up. She must obviously be properly ticked off and made to return him to store. A quarter of an hour later I had tracked her down to the summer house in which she was taking a cooler and was seating myself by her side. "'Angela,' I said, and if my voice was stern, well, whose wouldn't have been? This is all perfect drivel. She seemed to come out of a reverie. She looked at me inquiringly. "'I'm sorry, Bertie. I didn't hear. What were you talking drivel about?' "'I was not talking drivel. Oh, sorry. I thought you said you were. Is it likely that I would come out here in order to talk drivel?' "'Very likely.' I thought it best to haul off and approach the matter from another angle. I have just seen Tuppy. Oh? And Gussie Finknottle. Oh, yes? It appears that you have gone and got engaged to the latter. Quite right. Well, that's what I meant when I said it was all perfect drivel. You can't possibly love a chap like Gussie. Why not? You simply can't. Well, I mean to say, of course, she couldn't. Nobody could love a freak like Gussie, except a similar freak like the Bassett. The shot wasn't on the board. A splendid chap, of course, in many ways. Courteous, amiable, and just the fellow to tell you what to do till the doctor came, if you had a sick newt on your hands, but quite obviously not of Mendelssohn's March timber. I have no doubt that you could have flung bricks by the hour in England's most densely populated districts without endangering the safety of a single girl capable of becoming Mrs. Augustus Finknottle without an anesthetic. I put this to her, and she was forced to admit the justice of it. All right, then, perhaps I don't. Then what, I said keenly, did you want to go and get engaged to him for, you unreasonable young fathead? I thought it would be fun. Fun? And so it has been. I've had a lot of fun of it. You should have seen Tuppy's face when I told him. A sudden bright light shone upon me. Ha! A gesture. What? You got engaged to Gussie just to score off Tuppy. I did. Well, then, that's what I was saying. 
It was a gesture. Yes, I suppose you could call it that. And I'll tell you something else I'll call it, viz a dashed low trick. I'm surprised at you, young Angela. I don't see why. I curled the lip about half an inch. Being female, you wouldn't. You gentler sexes are like that. You pull off the raw stuff without a pang. You pride yourselves on it. Look at Jael, the wife of Heber. Where did you ever hear of Jael, the wife of Heber? Possibly you are not aware that I once won a scripture knowledge prize at school? Oh, yes, I remember Augustus mentioning it in his speech. Quite, I said a little hurriedly. I had no wish to be reminded of Augustus's speech. Well, as I say, look at Jael, the wife of Heber. Dug spikes into the guest's coconut while he was asleep, and then went swanking about the place like a girl guide. No wonder they say, oh, woman, woman. Who? The chaps who do. Coo, what a sex. But you aren't proposing to keep this up, of course. Keep what up? This rot of being engaged to Gussie. I certainly am. Just to make Tuppy look silly. Do you think he looks silly? I do. So he ought to. I began to get the idea that I wasn't making real headway. I remember when I won that scripture knowledge prize having to go into the facts about Balaam's ass. I can't quite recall what they were, but I still retain a sort of general impression of something digging its feet in and putting its ears back and refusing to cooperate, and it seemed to me that this was what Angela was doing now. She and Balaam's ass were, so to speak, sisters under the skin. There's a word beginning with R. Re-something. Recall something No, it's gone. But what I'm driving at is, that is what this Angela was showing herself. Silly young geezer, I said. She pinkened. I am not a silly young geezer. You are a silly young geezer. And what's more, you know it. I don't know anything of the kind. Here you are, wrecking Tuppy's life, wrecking Gussie's life, all for the sake of a cheap score. Well, it's no business of yours. I sat on this promptly. No business of mine when I see two lives I used to go to school with wrecked? Ha! Besides, you know your potty about Tuppy. I'm not. Is that so? If I had a quid for every time I've seen you gaze at him with the love light in your eyes... She gazed at me, but without the love light. Oh, for goodness sake, go away and boil your head, Bertie. I drew myself up. That, I replied with dignity, is just what I'm going to go away and boil. At least, I mean, I shall now leave you. I have had my say. Good. But permit me to add, I won't. Very good, I said coldly. In that case, tinkerty-tonk. And I meant it to sting. Moody and discouraged were about the two adjectives you would have selected to describe me as I left the summer-house. It would be idle to deny that I expected better results from this little chat. I was surprised at Angela. Odd how you never realize that every girl is at heart a vicious specimen until something goes wrong with her love affair. This cousin and I had been meeting freely since the days when I wore sailor suits, and she hadn't any front teeth, yet only now was I beginning to get on to her hidden depths. A simple, jolly, kindly young pimple she had always struck me as, 
the sort you could more or less rely on not to hurt a fly. But here she was, now laughing heartlessly, at least I seem to remember hearing her laugh heartlessly, like something cold and callous out of a sophisticated talkie, and fairly spitting on her hands in her determination to bring Tuppy's gray hairs in sorrow to the grave. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Girls are rummy. Old Pop Kipling never said a truer word than when he made that crack about the F of the S being more D than the M. It seemed to me in the cirques that there was but one thing to do. That is, head for the dining-room and make a slash at the cold collation of which Jeeves had spoken. I felt an urgent need of sustenance, for the recent interview had pulled me down a bit. There is no gainsaying the fact that this naked emotion stuff reduces a chap's vitality and puts him in the vein for a good whack at the beef and ham. To the dining-room, accordingly, I repaired, and had barely crossed the threshold when I perceived Aunt Dahlia at the sideboard, tucking into salmon mayonnaise. The spectacle drew from me a quick, oh, ah, for I was somewhat embarrassed. The last time this relative and I enjoyed a tete-a-tete, it will be remembered, she had sketched out plans for drowning me in the kitchen garden pond, and I was not quite sure what my present standing with her was. I was relieved to find her in a genial mood. Nothing could have exceeded the cordiality with which she waved her fork. "'Hello, Bertie, you old ass,' was her very matey greeting. "'I thought I shouldn't find you far away from the food. Try some of this salmon. Excellent.' "'Anatoles?' I queried. No, he's still in bed, but the kitchen maid has struck an inspired streak. It suddenly seems to have come home to her that she isn't catering for a covey of buzzards in the Sahara Desert, and she has put out something quite fit for human consumption. There's good in the girl after all, and I hope she enjoys herself at the dance. I ladled out a portion of salmon, and we fell into pleasant conversation, chatting of this servant's ball at the Stretchley Buds, and speculating, idly I recall, as to what seppings the butler would look like doing the rumba. It was not till I had cleaned up the first platter and was embarking on a second when the subject of Gussie came up. Considering what had passed at Market Snodsbury that afternoon, it was one which I had been expecting her to touch on earlier. When she did touch on it, I could see that she had not yet been informed of Angela's engagement. "'I say, Bertie,' she said, meditatively chewing fruit salad, "'this pink-bottle.' Noddle. Bottle, insisted the aunt firmly. After that exhibition of his this afternoon, bottle and nothing but bottle is how I shall always think of him. However, what I was going to say was that, if you see him, I wish you would tell him that he has made an old woman very, very happy. Except for the time when the curate tripped over a loose shoelace and fell down the pulpit steps, I don't think I have ever had a more wonderful moment than when good old Bottle suddenly started ticking Tom off from the platform. In fact, I thought his whole performance in the most perfect taste. I could not but demur. Those references to myself. Those were what I liked next best. I thought they were fine. Is it true that you cheated when you won that Scripture Knowledge Prize? Certainly not. My victory was the outcome of the most strenuous and unremitting efforts. And how about this pessimism we hear of? Are you a pessimist, Bertie? I could have told her that what was occurring in this house was rapidly making me one, but I said no, I wasn't. That's right. Never be a pessimist. 
Everything is for the best in this best of all possible worlds. It's a long lane that has no turning. It's always darkest before the dawn. Have patience and all will come right. The sun will shine, although the day's a gray one. Try some of this salad. I followed her advice, but even as I plied the spoon, my thoughts were elsewhere. I was perplexed. It may have been the fact that I had recently been hobnobbing with so many bowed-down hearts that made this cheeriness of hers so bizarre, but bizarre was certainly what I found it. I thought you might have been a trifle peeved, I said. Peeved? By Gussie's maneuvers on the platform this afternoon. I confess that I had rather expected the tapping foot and the drawn brow. Nonsense! What was there to be peeved about? I took the whole thing as a great compliment, proud to feel that any drink from my cellars could have produced such a majestic jag. It restores one's faith in post-war whiskey. Besides, I couldn't be peeved at anything tonight. I am like a little child clapping its hands and dancing in the sunshine. For though it has been some time getting a move on, Bertie, the sun has at last broken through the clouds. Ring out those joy bells. Anatole has withdrawn his notice. What? Oh, very hearty congratulations. Thanks. Yes, I worked on him like a beaver after I got back this afternoon. And finally, vowing he would ne'er consent, he consented. He stays on, praises B, and the way I look at it now is that God's in his heaven and all's right with... She broke off. The door had opened, and we were plus a butler. Hello, Seppings, said Aunt Dahlia. I thought you had gone. Not yet, madam. Well, I hope you will all have a good time. Thank you, madam. Was there something you wanted to see me about? Yes, madam. It is with reference to Monsieur Anatole. Is it by your wish, madam, that Mr. Ficknoddle is making faces at Monsieur Anatole through the skylight of his bedroom? End of chapter 19 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. Right Ho Jeeves by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 20. There was one of those long silences. Pregnant, I believe, is what they are generally called. Aunt looked at Butler. Butler looked at Aunt. I looked at both of them. An eerie stillness seemed to envelop the room like a linseed poultice. I happened to be biting on a slice of apple in my fruit salad at the moment, and it sounded as if Carnera had jumped off the top of the Eiffel Tower onto a cucumber frame. Aunt Dahlia steadied herself against the sideboard and spoke in a low, husky voice. Faces? Yes, madam. Through the skylight. Yes, madam. You mean he's sitting on the roof? Yes, madam. It has upset Monsieur Anatole very much. I suppose it was the word upset that touched Aunt Dahlia off. Experience had taught her what happened when Anatole got upset. I had always known her as a woman who was quite active on her pins, but I had never suspected her of being capable of the magnificent burst of speed which she now showed. Pausing merely to get a rich hunting-field expletive off her chest, she was out of the room and making for the stairs before I could swallow a sliver of, 
I think, banana. And feeling, as I had felt when I got that telegram of hers about Angela and Tuppy, that my place was by her side, I put down my plate and hastened after her, Seppings following at a loping gallop. I say that my place was by her side, but it was not so dashed easy to get there, for she was setting a cracking pace. At the top of the first flight she must have led by a matter of a half-dozen lengths, and she was still shaking off my challenge when she rounded into the second. At the next landing, however, the grueling going appeared to tell on her, for she slackened off a trifle and showed symptoms of roaring, and by the time we were in the straight we were running practically neck and neck. Our entry into Anatole's room was as close a finish as you could have wished to see. Result? 1. Dahlia. 2. Bertram. 3. Seppings. One by a short head, half a staircase separated second and third. The first thing that met the eye on entering was Anatole. This wizard of the cooking stove is a tubby little man with a mustache of the outsize or soup strainer type, and you can generally take a line through it as to the state of his emotions. When all is well, it turns up at the ends like a sergeant major's. When the soul is bruised, it droops. It was drooping now, striking a sinister note. And if any shadow of doubt had remained as to how he was feeling, the way he was carrying on would have dispelled it. He was standing by the bed in pink pajamas, waving his fists at the skylight. Through the glass, Gussie was staring down. His eyes were bulging and his mouth was open, giving him so striking a resemblance to some rare fish in an aquarium that one's primary impulse was to offer him an ant's egg. Watching this fist-waving cook and this goggling guest, I must say that my sympathies were completely with the former. I considered him thoroughly justified in waving all the fists he wanted to. Reviewing the facts, I mean to say, there he had been, lying in bed, thinking idly of whatever French cooks do think about when in bed, and he had suddenly become aware of that frightful face at the window. A thing to jar the most phlegmatic. I know I should hate to be lying in bed and have Gussie popping up like that. A chap's bedroom, you can't get away from it, is his castle, and he has every right to look askance if gargoyles come glaring in at him. While I stood musing thus, Aunt Dahlia, in her practical way, was coming straight to the point. What's all this? Anatole did a sort of Swedish exercise, starting at the base of the spine, carrying on through the shoulder blades, and finishing up among the back hair. Then he told her, In the chats I have had with this wonder man, I have always found his English fluent, but a bit on the mixed side. If you remember, he was with Mr. Bingo Little for a time before coming to Brinkley, and no doubt he picked up a good deal from Bingo. Before that he had been a couple of years with an American family at Nice, and had studied under their chauffeur, one of the Maloneys of Brooklyn. So what with Bingo and what with Maloney, he is, as I say, fluent but a bit mixed. He spoke in part as follows. Hot dog! You ask me what is it? Listen. Make some attention a little. Me, I have heat the hay, but I do not sleep so good. And presently I wake up and I look, and there is one who make faces against me through the dashed window. Is that a pretty affair? Is that convenient? 
If you think I like it, you jolly well mistake yourself. I am so mad as a wet hen. And why not? I am somebody, isn't it? This is a bedroom, what, what? Not a house for some apes? Then for what do blighters sit on my window so cool as a few cucumbers making some faces? Quite, I said. Dash it reasonable was my verdict. He threw another look up at Gussie and did exercise two, the one where you clutch the mustache, give it a tug, and then start catching flies. Wait yet a little. I am not finish. I say, I see this type on my window, making a few faces. But what then? Does he buzz off when I shout a cry, and leave me peaceable? Not on your life. He remained planted there, not giving any dams, and sit regarding me like a cat watching a duck. He make faces against me, and again he make faces against me, and the more I command that he should get the hell out of here, the more he do not get to hell out of here. He cries something towards me, and I demand, what is this desire? But he do not explain. Oh no, that arrives never. He does but shrug his head. What a damn silliness. Is this amusing for me? You think I like it? I am not content with such folly. I think the poor mutt's loony. Let me fish till a tapping thick. C'est idiot affaire comme cela soit. Allez-vous en l'offier. Tell the boob to go away. He is mad as some March hatters. I must say I thought he was making out a jolly good case, and evidently Aunt Dahlia felt the same. She laid a quivering hand on his shoulder. "'I will, Monsieur Anatole, I will,' she said, and I couldn't have believed that robust voice capable of sinking to such an absolute coup, more like a turtle-dove calling to its mate than anything else. "'It's quite all right.' She had said the wrong thing. He did exercise three. "'All right!' Nom do nom do nom! The hell you say it's all right! Of what used to post stuff like that! Wait one half a moment! Not yet quite so quick, my old sport! It is by no means all right! See it again a little! It is some very different dishes of fish! I can take a few smooths with a rough, it is true, but I do not find it agreeable when one play locks against me on my windows. That cannot do. A nice thing? No. I am a serious man. I do not wish a few locks on my windows. I enjoy locks on my windows worse as any. It is very little all right. If such Ranigazoo is to arrive, I do not remain any longer in this house no more. I buzz off and do not stay planted. Sinister words I had to admit, and I was not surprised that Aunt Dahlia, hearing them, should have uttered a cry like the wail of a master of hounds seeing a fox shot. Anatole had begun to wave his fists again at Gussie, and she now joined him. Seppings, who was puffing respectfully in the background, 
didn't actually wave his fists, but he gave Gussie a pretty austere look. It was plain to the thoughtful observer that this Finknoddle, in getting on to that skylight, had done a mistaken thing. He couldn't have been more unpopular in the home of G. G. Simmons. "'Go away, you crazy loon!' cried Aunt Dahlia, in that ringing voice of hers, which had once caused nervous members of the corn to lose stirrups and make tossers from the saddle. Gussie's reply was to waggle his eyebrows. I could read the message he was trying to convey. "'I think he means,' I said, reasonable old Bertram always trying to throw oil on the troubled W's, that if he does, he will fall down the side of the house and break his neck. "'Well, why not?' said Aunt Dahlia. I could see her point, of course, but it seemed to me that there might be a nearer solution. This skylight happened to be the only window in the house which Uncle Tom had not festooned with his bally bars. I suppose he felt that if a burglar had the nerve to climb up as far as this, he deserved what was coming to him. If you opened the skylight, he could jump in. The idea got across. Seppings, how does this skylight open? With a pole, madam. Then get a pole. Get two poles. Ten. And presently Gussie was mixing with the company. Like one of those chaps you read about in the papers, the wretched man seemed deeply conscious of his position. I must say Aunt Dahlia's bearing and demeanor did nothing to assist toward a restored composure. Of the amiability which she had exhibited when discussing this unhappy chump's activities with me over the fruit salad, no trace remained, and I was not surprised that speech more or less froze on the Finknoddle's lips. It isn't often that Aunt Dahlia, normally as genial a bird as ever encouraged a gaggle of hounds to get their noses down to it, lets her angry passions rise, but when she does, strong men climb trees and pull them up after them. Well, she said. In response to this, all that Gussie could produce was a sort of strangled hiccough. Well? Aunt Dahlia's face grew darker. Hunting, if indulged in regularly over a period of years, is a pastime that seldom fails to lend a fairly deepish tinge to the patient's complexion, and her best friends could not have denied that even at normal times the relative's map tended a little toward the crushed strawberry. But never had I seen it take on so pronounced a richness as now. She looked like a tomato struggling for self-expression. Well? Gussie tried hard and for a moment it seemed as if something was going to come through. But in the end it turned out nothing more than a sort of death-rattle. "'Oh, take him away, Bertie, and put ice on his head,' said Aunt Dahlia, giving the thing up. And she turned to tackle what looked like the rather man-sized job of soothing Anatole, who was now carrying on a muttered conversation with himself in a rapid sort of way. Seeming to feel that the situation was one to which he could not do justice in bingo cum maloney anglo-american he had fallen back on his native tongue words like marmiton du dommage and pignouf and hurlebelu and rouse de sur were fluttering from him like bats out of a barn lost on me of course because though i sweated a bit at the gallic language during the con visit i'm still more or less in the escourvous avez stage i regretted this for they sounded good I assisted Gussie down the stairs. A cooler thinker than Aunt Dahlia, I had already guessed the hidden springs and motives which had led him to the roof. 
where she had seen only a cockeyed reveler indulging himself in a drunken prank or whimsy, I had spotted the hunted fawn. "'Was Tuppy after you?' I asked sympathetically. What I believe is called a frisson shook him. He nearly got me on the top landing. I shinned out through a passage window and scrambled along a sort of ledge. That baffled him, what? Yes, but then I found I had stuck. The roof sloped down in all directions. I couldn't go back. I had to go on, crawling along this ledge, and then I found myself looking down the skylight. Who was that chap? That was Anatole, Aunt Dahlia's chef. French? To the core. That explains why I couldn't make him understand. What asses these Frenchmen are! They don't seem able to grasp the simplest thing. You'd have thought if a chap saw a chap on a skylight, the chap would realize the chap wanted to be let in. But no, he just stood there, waving a few fists. Yes, silly idiot. Still, here I am. Here you are, yes, for the moment. Eh? I was thinking that Tuppy is probably lurking somewhere. He leaped like a lamb in springtime. What shall I do? I considered this. Sneak back to your room and barricade the door. That is the manly policy. Suppose that's where he's lurking. In that case, move elsewhere. But on arrival at the room, it transpired that Tuppy, if anywhere, was infesting some other portion of the house. Gussie shot in, and I heard the key turn. And feeling that there was no more that I could do in that quarter, I returned to the dining room for further fruit salad and a quiet think. And I had barely filled my plate when the door opened and Aunt Dahlia came in. She sank into a chair, looking a bit shopworn. Give me a drink, Bertie. What sort? Any sort, as long as it's strong. Approach Bertram Wooster along these lines, and you catch him at his best. St. Bernard dogs doing the square thing by alpine travelers could not have bustled about more assiduously. I filled the order, and for some moments nothing was to be heard but the sloshing sound of an aunt restoring her tissues. "'Shove it down, Aunt Dahlia,' I said sympathetically. "'These things take it out of one, don't they? You've had a toughish time, no doubt, soothing Anatole.' I proceeded, helping myself to anchovy paste on toast. Everything pretty smooth now, I trust? She gazed at me in a long, lingering sort of way. Her brow wrinkled as if in thought. Attila, she said at length. That's the name. Attila the Hun. Eh? I was trying to think who you reminded me of. Somebody who went about strewing ruin and desolation and breaking up homes which, until he came along, had been happy and peaceful. Attila is the man. It's amazing, she said, drinking me in once more. To look at you, one would think you were just an ordinary sort of amiable idiot. Certifiable, perhaps, but quite harmless. Yet in reality, you are worse a scourge than the Black Death. I tell you, Bertie, when I contemplate you... I seem to come up against all the underlying sorrow and horror of life with such a thud that I feel as if I had walked into a lamppost. Pained and surprised, I would have spoken, but the stuff I had thought was anchovy paste had turned out to be something far more gooey and adhesive. It seemed to wrap itself round the tongue and impede utterance like a gag. 
and while I was still endeavoring to clear the vocal cords for action, she went on. Do you realize what you started when you sent that spink-bottle man down here? As regards his getting blotto and turning the prize-giving ceremonies at Market Snodsbury Grammar School into a sort of two-reel comic film, I will say nothing, for, frankly, I enjoyed it. But when he comes leering at Anatole through skylights, just after I had with infinite pains and tact induced him to withdraw his notice, and makes him so temperamental that he won't hear of staying on after tomorrow, the pace stuff gave way, I was able to speak. What? Yes, Anatole goes tomorrow, and I suppose poor old Tom will have indigestion for the rest of his life. And that is not all. I have just seen Angela, and she tells me she is engaged to this bottle. Temporarily, yes, I had to admit. Temporarily be blowed. She's definitely engaged to him and talks with a sort of hideous coolness of getting married in October. So there it is. If the prophet Job were to walk into the room at this moment, I could sit swapping hard luck stories with him till bedtime. Not that Job was in my class. He had boils. Well, what are boils? Dash it painful, I understand. Nonsense. I take all the boils on the market in exchange for my troubles. Can't you realize the position? I've lost the best cook to England. My husband, poor soul, will probably die of dyspepsia and my only daughter, for whom I had dreamed such a wonderful future, is engaged to be married to an inebriated newt fancier. And you talk about boils. I corrected her on a small point. I don't absolutely talk about boils. I merely mentioned that Job had them. Yes, I agree with you, Aunt Dahlia, that things are not looking too come spiff at the moment, but be of good cheer. A wooster is seldom baffled for more than the nonce. You rather expect to be coming along shortly with another of your schemes? At any minute. She sighed resignedly. I thought as much. Well, it needed but this. I don't see how things could possibly be worse than they are, but no doubt you will succeed in making them so. Your genius and insight will find the way. Carry on, Bertie. Yes, carry on. I am past caring now. I shall even find a faint interest in seeing into what darker and profounder abysses of hell you can plunge this home. Go to it, lad. What's that stuff you're eating? I find it a little difficult to classify. Some sort of paste on toast. Rather like glue flavored with beef extract. Gimme, said Aunt Dahlia listlessly. Be careful how you chew, I advised. It sticketh closer than a brother. Yes, Jeeves? The man had materialized on the carpet, absolutely noiseless, as usual. A note for you, sir. A note for me, Jeeves? A note for you, sir. From whom, Jeeves? From Miss Bassett, sir. From whom, Jeeves? From Miss Bassett, sir. From Miss Bassett, Jeeves? From Miss Bassett, sir. At this point, Aunt Dahlia, who had taken one nibble at her whatever it was on toast and laid it down, begged us, a little fretfully, I thought, for heaven's sake to cut out the cross-talk vaudeville stuff, as she had enough to bear already without having to listen to us doing our imitation of the two Max. Always willing to oblige, I dismissed Jeeves with a nod, and he flickered for a moment and was gone. 
many a specter would have been less slippy. But what, I mused, toying with the envelope, can this female be writing to me about? Why not open the damn thing and see? A very excellent idea, I said, and did so. And if you're interested in my movements, proceeded Aunt Dahlia, heading for the door, I propose to go to my room, do some yoga-deep breathing, and try to forget. Quite, I said absently, skimming P1, and then as I turned over, a sharp howl broke from my lips, causing Aunt Dahlia to shy like a startled Mustang. Don't do it, she exclaimed, quivering in every limb. Yes, but dash it. What a pest you are, you miserable object, she sighed. I remember years ago when you were in your cradle, being left alone with you one day, and you nearly swallowed your rubber comforter and started turning purple. And I, asked that I was, took it out and saved your life. Let me tell you, young birdie, it will go very hard with you if you ever swallow a rubber comforter again, when only I am by to aid. But dash it, I cried, do you know what's happened? Madeline Bassett says she's going to marry me. I hope it keeps fine for you, said the relative, and passed from the room looking like something out of an Edgar Allan Poe story. End of chapter 20 Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.